How do you normally start cooking? Olive oil, right? Well, I have great news for you. This podcast is also brought to you by California Olive Ranch, expertly crafted extra version olive oil. Go to CaliforniaOliveRanch.com and enter the promo code CHICKENS10, that's one word, CHICKENS10, to receive 10% off your entire first purchase. The offer is available through December 31st. California Olive Ranch, discovery starts in the bottle. Let's start the show. Pastel de nata. Churros. Brigadeiro. Calzone. Apple pie. Shredu roll pian. Bangers and mash. Toad in the hole. Paella. Welcome back for another episode of Turning Chickens and Breaking Dishes. My name is David G. Martins, and I'm the executive chef for the European Union Embassy in Washington, D.C. And if this is your first time listening, let me explain to you why my podcast has this amazing name. I'm originally from Portugal and I've been living in Washington, D.C. for the last nine years. And the name of the podcast refers to two Portuguese phrases. Turning chickens means someone that has a lot of experience and breaking dishes means someone that has exceeded all expectations. I'll be asking my guests if they've been turning more chickens or breaking more dishes. Every episode, I'll have a guest and we'll talk about everything related to food, Not necessarily ingredients or dishes, but how through food we can help communities, the success of small business owners, the fascinating stories that we remember growing up with our families sitting around the table, and even which ingredients are overrated and underrated and much more. Don't forget to subscribe to my podcast on all the platforms you have access to. Follow me on Instagram at Turning Chickens Breaking Dishes and follow the Facebook page Turning Chickens and Breaking Dishes. If you want to support this podcast, go to anchor.fm slash david dash martins i hope you have an amazing time listening to every episode and don't forget i'm portuguese so if something doesn't sound exactly right just pretend that you understand my guest today lives with this ambition go everywhere eat everything it's a journey that has taken him to all 50 states and to dozens of countries around the world a british-born storyteller he started a popular blog called dos hermanos with his brother in 2006. Since then, he's written publications for The Guardian, The Times, and The Daily Mail, among others. He's also a restaurant critic for Time Out's Los Angeles magazine. He has written three cookbooks, Eat My Globe, which sounds a little naughty, Eating for <laughs> Britain, and his latest, Fed White and Blue, Finding America with My Fork. He has appeared on Food Network uh, cooking shows, such as Guy's Grocery Games, Iron Chef America, The Next Iron Chef, the best thing I ever ate, and much more. Also, he appeared as an expert commentator on National Geographic's major series, Eat the Story of Food. He's also the creator and host of the food history podcast, Eat My Globe, Things You Didn't Know You Didn't Know About Food. His soccer or football club, depending on the country you are in, has the nickname of the Millers. And sadly to say, they haven't won anything since 1988. Simon Manjundar, welcome to the podcast. Welcome. I, I, I think I might have to correct you on... My Please football do. team. I think they've had a. I think my football team have got won a couple of promotions, uh, but maybe, Simon. maybe. Yeah, but maybe not a championship or anything. A promotion. It's not exactly a title, Simon. It's okay. <laughs> they came into second. I did my research for this. This was the most uh, difficult part of the research. But as a first position, I'm sorry to tell you, it's okay. It's okay. Had you ever heard of Rotherham United before that? You know, I, I, yes, because I watch a lot of soccer and my mornings are spent sometimes watching third division games. So, yes. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, they've, they've just gone up to the championship now. Yeah, that was, so. that, was, that was going to be my question, but we can, I can ask you that right away. Well, that was my first question. Are you happy that they're going to compete on the second division? 
I no, I think it's a bit premature. I don't. They ended up having a very good run just before lockdown and uh, ended up in second place. And then when they had the votes, they didn't finish the season. I think if the season had played through, they would have gone down a bit because they're not. They're never consistent, Rotherham. I've been supporting them since I was three years old when my father was the club doctor there. Two important questions. Have you been to Portugal? I have, yes. we have. Uh, in fact, uh, my wife and I spent our honeymoon in Portugal a little over 10 years ago. Perfect. Uh, we were in Lisbon, we were in Porto, and then we went out to Madeira and Porto Santo. And we had we spent time on a wonderful vineyard. I wrote an article about it for in Quinta de Naval in the Douro, and also spent some time in one of my favorite places ever uh, in, and forgive my pronunciation, Milhada. Milhada. Eating, eating fantastic suckling pig, which yes. was very, I, and again, I think I wrote an article about that way back when for The Guardian. Yeah, it was a wonderful, wonderful place. And I just love the, I love the food culture, obviously, which is why we went. Do you know any Portuguese words? Uh, I don't, I have to say. Oddly enough, I'm learning the language of one of your neighbors, as it were, right now, because I'm, uh, we, have a fa we had a family home in, in Spain until last year. My father passed away and that place got sold. Uh, but my wife and I at some point are thinking maybe we'll go back there. So I'm actually trying to brush up on my Spanish. Maybe I should, I need to do some, uh, learn some Portuguese as well. It's such should. a wonderful country. I know. It is, yeah. And it's such an important part of food history, of course, because it is. I, I actually say, if I'm asked, I think that the Portuguese are the most important nation in food history because they took everything everywhere. They taught the Japanese how to make tempura and they took, you know, everything from custard tarts to Macau mm, yeah. uh, to chilies to, you know, all over the world. And I mean, they're just a very, very important food nation. So It's definitely somewhere. Anyone who's interested in food needs to go and learn a lot about Portugal. Otherwise, they don't really understand food history. Thank you, Simon. Because when I say that, people think I'm being biased because I'm from Portugal. So you can say it. So I'll let you. That's why. Yeah, perfect. No, no. I, I, and I'm not just saying it. I've said it on air, as it were, on my, uh, on my podcast. So, you know, I'm not just saying it to, to suck up to you. <laughs> <laughs> you started your career as a book editor. But did you always enjoy cooking? I did. In fact, I started my career, in fact, uh, training to be an Episcopalian priest. I studied, oh, the I studied theology at university, and then that went badly. And so I ended up getting a job in a bookshop and through a, you know, the period of time became a book editor and a book publisher. But I worked on a lot of cookbooks, and cooking has always been an obsession with our family. And then, as you mentioned in the introduction about We, my brother and I started one of the very first food blogs. There weren't as many then. Now there are probably about a million of them. But back then there was probably about 10 of them. In the, yeah, there were certainly a lot fe uh, fewer. And so we started writing this uh, podcast, uh, sorry, writing this blog. And it ended up doing really well. Um, we, were restaurant we did restaurant reviews. And the fact, I think, we, that made us different is we were in our 40s then. So we weren't... Uh, like the young kids. So when mm -hmm. we wrote about restaurants, we'd already been to a lot of the great restaurants around the world. And so we came at it with a point that I still try and do now, a kind of a point of real objectivity. We could say to chefs, well, I know why you're doing this, but I know you're exactly copying Michel Brass or you're copying blah, blah, blah. And so it started getting picked up and uh, we got mentioned in The Guardian and hence I ended up writing for The Guardian mentioned in the evening standard the big evening paper in london as like 
the most influential people in London. And it all just started to grow. But in fact, my journey to what I'm doing now, which is very much food, obviously food based or food and travel based, was that I just I just needed to leave publishing. Uh, the company I was working for was struggling and uh, went bust pretty soon after I left. And I just needed uh, I needed a break. I was having one of those classic kind of long dark nights of the soul. And I quit my job when I wrote Eat My Globe. I found that note that motto that I, you mentioned, go everywhere, eat everything. I just quit my job the next day and I said, I'm off. Uh, they, yeah, they were very kind. They let me go. And that was it. And kind of, I never thought I was going to write anything until I was about halfway up the Yangtze River in China. I went to 31 countries in a year. And after about a month or so, I was halfway up the Yangtze River and I got a note from uh, Anthony Bourdain going, you should write a proposal. I knew him through the food chat boards like Chow Hound. And uh, he's, he sent me a quote to put on the front of the book proposal, not even the book, but the book proposal. And that meant that publishers would at least open it because it was Anthony Bourdain. And then the next thing I knew is uh, I found an email you know, from my agent who I'd got saying that they'd sold the book in two places. And that was the beginning of what I do now. So it's it's all been some great accident, I think, but I'm, in, I'm rather enjoying it. Do you have any early memories with your family around the table? Oh, all, all of my great memories with my family. Not just kind of very close family, but all of my families in India. My father was from India. So when I talk about that, it's always, oh, do you remember when we did this? And you go, no. And you go, oh, yeah, you do. We were eating X, Y, and Z. And you go, yeah, because I kind of, signpost things that happened in my life by what I was eating. Uh, I think a lot of people who are really obsessed with food do that. And also my mother was Welsh. And so that was very different. You know, it's a, the cuisine from Wales, very simple, but baking really good, like pies and cakes and things like that, that are really delicious. So I remember my Welsh grandmother feeding me up until I could roll out <laughs> of the house because she fed me so much food. And then every Sunday, our family my mother insisted we would all sit together and have, you know, the classic British Sunday lunch. And we would do that. And that would, we'd have conversations and they would be conversations about anything. You know, they were very different politically. My mother was very kind of conservative. My father, very, very liberal. And so we'd had great conversations at the table, even from when we were very young. You came to the culinary world later-ish, uh, not too late. After the passing of your mother, what about that event drove the change in your life? Well, I think it's, finding getting to a point where I had some money you know I, I don't claim to have been you know, I wasn't poor by any means I'd saved up quite a bit of money and enough to go and go around the world but I, I anticipated coming back to London and trying to get another job in publishing and you know see what happened and just say well I took a year off I had to you know just for my mental health but then that that job on that trip around the world for eat my globe I met my wife I you met in Brazil, in, right? Yeah, we met in Brazil. I was not having a great time. I had one of those kind of unfortunate experiences that happens to everyone when they travel a lot. You know, I had people you know, try to bug me and I had, you know, just things that happened. They all came together. I had sunburn. I got 500 bed bug bites from the cheap guest house. I was all those things that come together. So I wasn't having the best time, but then I, you know, met my wonderful wife. And so... Brazil has very mixed memories. And I keep on saying, 
I need to go. Oh, and I got a small amount of food poison as well from like. Perfect. You got the whole package, right? That's, oh yeah, yeah. But probably too much dende oil or something with yeah, they, <laughs> which is definitely something that is an acquired taste, and certainly at the time I hadn't acquired it. But uh, so I so that I came to the United States, and then what happened was my now manager, still my manager, had read my book. And had heard me on a, the BBC. I was doing the world. I was on the BBC World Service one day, talking about sandwiches. And at this point, I was writing about food and writing about travel for the Guardian and various others. And so uh, he'd read my book and said, "Are you ever in Los Angeles?" And it turned out I was on my book tour, which was going to finish in Los Angeles, where I live now. So that was kind of the beginning. And then what happened was just before our wedding, in fact. Uh, we got a call from the people who produce Iron Chef America, which is obviously a big show here. And I knew about it, but not a lot because I come from the UK. You know, we have our own shows. And uh, they said, would you like to come and interview to see if you could be a judge on the show? And so I did. And I got a call while we were in uh, Portugal just saying, you know, we'd like you to come and be a judge. But it wasn't just for Iron Chef America. It was for a big show called The Next Iron Chef. I kind of didn't even realize was really what was going on. I was just kind of busy getting married and going off and having a good honeymoon. And so that was, that was it. I came back and did that show just over 10 years ago. Uh, but food was always, always obsessive. One of the things that I found is people ask me, you know, I don't, I'm ne I never call myself a chef, although I cook professionally, I cook dinners and I do events uh, and I cook well, but I never use the word chef because chefs are for people who work the line. It's a, I, I think it's a real term of respect that I don't have because I, I don't do that long, hard sweating on the line. And it's, it's something that I really, really do respect. But I, I think over the last, when people ask me where my culinary training comes from, I go, well, I spend half my time with people like Alton Brown and Jeffrey Zakarian and Bobby Flay and Guy Fieri and Alex Guanicelli. And I go, I have the best cooking school on <laughs> earth. And, and I have, I mean, certainly... The last 12 years of pretty solid culinary practice, if that's the right word, has given me, has shown me that I I do have some culinary skills. But again, I never use that word chef. So you've gone everywhere and you've eaten everything. Uh, what has food taught you about the cultures you have encountered, and especially in the U.S.? I think one of the things that I'm a great believer in, and it's not even necessarily a, a faith term, even though the word comes from kind of, you know, a faith background the notion of breaking bread is is the thing that i enjoy most food is the prism through which i use to meet people and it's the way that i meet people who can be of completely different political backgrounds they can be of completely different religious backgrounds completely different language and even though i sometimes don't understand them or you know a lot about their life once we have a meal together there's a bond that will never be broken And I have a number of examples of it, you know, whether it's being in Senegal and eating amazing food in the courtyard of this house of this person who I met in Senegal. And it's a, a wonderful dish, one of my favorites called Thiebujen, fish and rice, which is the most simplistic way of describing a really beautiful dish. And it's beautiful rice with uh, scotch bonnet peppers and fish. And oh, it's so good. Served on a big plate communally. And you sit eating it cross-legged and there's maybe four or five of you around this big plate. But what I found is the people who prepared the food kept on pushing all the big, beautiful pieces of fish to my side of the plate 
So I got to be the one who experienced it. And because of the hospitality or similarly, you know, I was on a, a train in uh, Morocco going from Marrakesh to Fez. It's a long journey, about eight hours. And I had totally misjudged my food needs and had, you know, half a packet of Pringles and a bottle of Diet Coke or something. And all these other people got on into my little cabin on the train. And they're all speaking, first of all, in Arabic. And then they asked me if I spoke Arabic because I have a darker skin. I think they just weren't sure. And I said, no. And they said, well, do you speak French? And I said, yeah, a little, because I learned French at school. So then they all switched to speaking French immediately. And then they all started getting out food. And they said, do you have food? And I said, no, no, I should have waved my packet of Pringles. Exactly. I have some Pringles. <laughs> I have these. Hot, yeah, they didn't seem terribly impressed by that. <laughs> but then they got all their suitcases down that they put above all the seats, put them on and formed these tables out of it and getting out food. And it was roast chicken and fish and like couscous and pickles. And all, all that wonderful Moroccan, those you can smell even now when I mentioned it, those earthy Moroccan, North African flavors. And again, they immediately got a plate, a paper plate out for me and started filling it up. I mean, literally filling it up till it was almost you know, <laughs> silly and making sure that I ate all the best bits because yeah. I was the guest. And I've seen that all over the world. I see it in the Philippines. I see it uh, in the Middle East. I see it in Northern Europe. I've seen it in Latin America. So for me, that's the thing. And here in the United States, it's the same. And I'm a very, very liberal person. But I could go down to Alabama or Arkansas or Florida, you know, places that are you know, more conservative. And I can sit and have a meal with wonderful people who just happen to have very different political beliefs. It's a little tougher right now. I'm not just because of COVID, but also some of the crazy political beliefs that are out there right now. But I can still go down there and I can sit with people who are much more conservative than I am. And I always have this saying, you can't have an argument with a mouthful of ribs. So once we start, <laughs> or you can't say to someone, I hate you, but can you pass the potatoes? Once you start sharing that food here in the United States, we realize that we're pretty much not that different different political beliefs, but that's fine. You know, everyone always will. So I, I actually have a function that I go around the country as much as possible and I share meals with everybody from, we've, we've cooked for people in military camps, we've cooked for dairy, yeah, we've cooked in dairies, we've, I've cooked at breweries, cooked for barbecue competitions, which tend, the people who attend those tend to be a little bit more on the conservative side. I've, I've hosted kosher barbecue festivals, which is something you would never know even existed, but it's just a wonderful, wonderful experience. And there's a big circuit. I've been all over you know, this country to every state. I think I've got a really good view of what people are like. So it, I hope it at least makes me a little more kind of tolerant of the fact that people are different. I hope. <laughs> so you've been to all 50 states? Yes. That, when I arrived in 2011... I put like a mission in my head. I was like, you know what? 10 years, I'll be almost there. So I've been in the US almost 10 years. You know how many states so far, Simon, for me? How many have you been to? Seven. Uh, That's sad, right? Well, you need, I mean, you're probably above average for most people in the United States. When <laughs> I you. talk to, no, but I mean, when you talk to people in the United States, they don't travel as much within their own country often if they get a break it's the two weeks or whatever that people get under normal working circumstances they'll go abroad because they want something completely different and i still have that issue because every time because i miss my country so much 
every time that I have a little bit of time off, you know, instead of like six hours plane to go to California, I might take a seven hour plane and I'm in Portugal. And yeah. I miss London. To me, even though I'm a US citizen and I live in LA, London will always be home. I think London, I still think it, I think it's the best city on earth. I think it's an extraordinary city. Its food scene has certainly improved a great deal. It's, a, I think, a terrific food city right now. And I miss it. I miss going to the pub. I miss going to the fish and chip shop. I miss, I miss just walking around. Uh, but what I did actively, and I think you have to be active about this rather than passive, is I said, I'm going to go to every city. Now, I, uh, every state. And one of the things that I was fortunate about, I guess, because I had some profile, was that I pitched the idea of Fed White and Blue, which was me becoming an American citizen, to Penguin. And they said, yeah, that's a great idea. So that allowed me to go to the last few states that I hadn't been to at that point, which were, was only a couple. I, only, I had to go to, I think it was uh, Maryland and Alaska. And, uh, and I wrote about Maryland. I didn't write anything specifically. <laughs> Those about. are two very different ones because actually I live in Maryland. Yeah, Maryland. Uh, well, no, no. I mean, and it, it was wonderful. And I have a, it's a, a very definite way of thinking about it. I have to stay over. It's not just going through an airport. I have to have a meal there. So I can't just drive through. Uh, Maryland was, because of the nature of what I was doing at that point, uh, I think I was driving down to Charleston, in fact. I can't even, I think. But I, so it was a fairly quick venture, but it, but it was kind of ticking the list. Alaska was a little more adventurous, and I went yeah. out there and went salmon fishing and out in the middle of nowhere where you have to fly in and scare the bears off the beach before you land and all of that. <laughs> Uh, but what you do see is that, and it's maybe cliche to say it, but this really is 50 different countries from a geographical point of view, from a cultural point of view. And although there's that kind of American kind of culturalism that goes everywhere, multinational companies and things that go everywhere, you still see enough individualism in e or individual uh, kind of qualities in each state that really make them worth visiting. If you go through the Dakotas and you go to Mount Rushmore, or you go further up to Fargo, or you go mm. way down to the south to Mississippi, or you go out to the right out to the east, uh, you know, Hilton Head, or you go wherever it is where we are in California, there's so much extraordinary stuff to see. And from a food point of view, so much extraordinary food to enjoy. And I think as well, people don't often realize just how varied the food is here whether it's you know just the differences of each state because of what they have in terms of ingredients but also and i'm a big believer of the the power of immigration to the united states you know whether you go an hour north of me now uh here in la or a little more than an hour and you can be eating in basque restaurants for you know goat herders and sheep herders eating at communal tables and wonderful, wonderful food. Or you can go to Houston and have incredible Vietnamese food, as good as you would have in Vietnam. Or, although slightly interestingly, I had someone tell me that it, it can be a little more old-fashioned because people who came over during the Vietnam War, and they tend to be uh, bring that food of that period with them. And you know, yeah. like everywhere else, their food is developing. But you can go everywhere. You can go to the east coast up in new england and every year they have big jamaican populations come in who help with certain harvesting 
I mean, it's just fantastic when you think about it. So, and it again, it blends with the local cultures. You see that it, I think, personally, the best eating city in the United States is New Orleans in the United States, certainly, because the mixture of cultures that come together, and you have to try really hard to eat badly in New Orleans. You really <laughs> yeah, have to try. It's a different. Hard. It's a it's a difficult task. Yeah, and and so for me, that is the perfect mix of Spanish, French, now Latin, and you know, uh, Caribbean cultures, and you had people move in after Katrina to help rebuild, and they brought their music and their food with them. New Orleans just accepts it and accepts it and accepts it. It always has done. So I think America is an extraordinary country to travel around. One of the best things U.S. has to offer is, in Europe, in Portugal, I would say that a lot of people would say that you know American foods. What's American food? They're like, oh, you know, they don't have a whole lot of going on. And the most interesting thing is that when you go out here and you ask your friend, so let's go to a restaurant, it's funny how, oh, everybody says like, so where are you going to have, do you want to go to Mexican, do you want to go to Vietnamese, do you go to a Thai restaurant? And it's good quality. For instance, countries like Portugal and Lisbon nowadays, as you probably know, it's like the new Berlin, the new Barcelona. I've said here this before in, Barcelona, in, in the podcast because everybody's going to Lisbon. Lisbon is a new hub. In oh, Europe. yeah. It's, uh, yeah so. it's, it changed the last two, three years. So if you go outside of Lisbon, every little village, every little city, they have, I don't know, 40 restaurants. 40 restaurants are Portuguese food. Don't, yeah. even, don't even dare to have a Thai, a thai restaurant. <laughs> and it's interesting to see how if you're on a, you know, on a big, basically, street, a very long street, you have 50 restaurants and they all say typical Portuguese food. If you grab an American and you put him on a street that says typical American food, 50 restaurants, they'll go there one time to one of those restaurants and they, they will not go back again. Yeah. And, we, and we still have that... Oh, don't even dare not to offer anything that's not our food, which is a great, great food. Don't get me wrong. Oh, no, but that, that's one of the beauty of things about and one of the most beautiful things about U.S. is that you can find amazing food, and especially because of immigrants, like you were mentioning. You can just have, you know, this variety. What do you want? Do you want Greek? You want Thai? And that's the beauty about it. It's not just let's go for American food, whatever that means. Right. So that's the best thing about us no i absolutely agree and i think as well american food is consistently changing even if you say about so i i have this i mean obviously things have changed because of the pandemic and i think we're going to have real problems with the restaurant industry before that i thought that we were on the edge of a real golden age of food in the united states and the reason i say that was one we had second and third generation immigrant men and women cooking, coming into bringing their, their traditional cuisines into American cuisine. And we were seeing a real crossover. So you saw everything from Korean fried chicken appearing mm -hmm. on menus of fast food restaurants because it became so much part of the kind of American culinary vernacular. You saw, uh, you know, Vietnamese families opening boiling crab, like boiling crab, the one they opened that, that they're doing a kind of southern meats, Vietnamese and they're opening that because they they they're bringing the cultures together in in a really interesting way. The other reason is that is we we had and again who knows how we're going to develop out of what we're going through at the moment but this amazing resurgence of craft industry like when I first came to the United States 30 something years ago now nearly 40 years ago probably yeah 40 years ago you were five years old when you... <laughs> I wish. Uh, I was, uh, but I, I remember coming. It was just after I kind of left university and I came over here. It really was 
the similar we had in Britain, that kind of volume produced food. And it was still the echoes of the Second World War, quite frankly, where they were producing volume cheddar in volume form. And everything was about being cheap and volume to make sure people got fed, which was the immediate need after you know, the Second World War here yeah. in the United States, as well as a lot of other places. But what we slowly started to get from about the 1970s, you began to get craft cheese being made again. You got craft beer being made again. You know, this is going back to a period when America had, you know, incredible lager producers in Cincinnati or incredible cheese producers. But we were going back to that. You got, you know, craft distillers, craft bread making, craft butchery, slowly coming through and getting as part of things like the Food Network becoming well known. So I thought we were getting, yeah, we were going to be with that and the, and then also really terrific restaurants outside of the big cities. That was the other thing that I noticed going around the country. The best meals I've eaten weren't in LA, New York. They were in, like two years ago, I did the, the I do the show, The Best Thing I Ever Ate. Best meal I ate in the whole year was in Fresno. And you go, you know, I mean, I actually love Fresno and I have lots of friends there now because I go, I went to do some events, but I went to a restaurant there with a really well-trained person who trained with Nancy Silverton in LA and then went back to Fresno because he wanted to live with his family and buy a house and all of those things that people do and just cooked extraordinary food, Italian food in Fresno. Access to great ingredients because it's Fresno and they're in the mm -hmm. middle of the Central Valley and great talent, but you keep on going, it's in Fresno. And that's the same, you know, some of the best meals I've had are in Richmond, Virginia, or the edges of Detroit, or, you know, places that aren't necessarily known for having this kind of food. And that's getting really excited about it. And then of course, we were planning to do more trips this year inside the US as well as outside. It all came to a screeching standstill. Now I'm worried about what's gonna happen. I think we're gonna lose probably about 70% of the restaurants. What that'll do to the future, I don't know. I think we may end up having just big chains, which is one of the, but one of the other things I do is try, I work a lot with some of the big chains with organizations who work with the chefs of the big chains, the multinationals. Mm -hmm. And what's interesting is the chefs from who are there, the kind of R&D chefs at some of these very big chains are coming out of, a real kind of culinary background, not just a kind of huge, like volume background. So they're not just coming out of you know, hotels and all of that, which is fine, but they're also coming out of smaller restaurants with real ideas. And they have these organizations, I work with one, where we go and talk to them about trends and we go and talk to them about my, you know, small things, small, how to use small suppliers. You know, and they're interested in doing that too, because they see, quite frankly, that there's money in it. Maybe some of that might come through even more because there'll be space for people wanting kind of, for want of a better word, proper food. You were a guest on a show. Uh, well, the best thing I ever ate. You were just talking about it. It's the best thing you ever ate, if you can point. God, if I had to, it's hard to say one thing. And the reason, and that's not just the usual glib, oh, I've eaten so much, which you know, I have, but I think so much of it is about context. I, when I wrote about, for someone about the best meals of my life, you know, that meal on the train in, Marrakesh de Fez was one of the best meals of my life. And I'm still in touch with some of the people who were on that train. You know, if meals that I had, you know, we were in the Philippines, so I'm Filipino by marriage. You know, so 
we go over there quite regularly. And if I eat, you know, I had a Christmas meal, you know, Christmas just passed. And when I ate that food with all of my relatives and they come in from Manila and various different places and brought food with them. And the table was literally creaking under the weight of this amount of food. That was one of the best meals I've had. So many different types. Or if I go back to Yorkshire, where I'm from originally, Rotherham United is, if I go to my local fish and chip shop in Rotherham and I sit and have a plate of fish and chips with a glass of champagne, very little wrong with that. And I'm watching, a, particularly if I'm sitting with it on my lap on a tray and I'm watching a football match at the same time, I wouldn't want to be anywhere else on earth. So it, it's hard to mention fine dining. It, what's interesting is very little of it, even though I eat a great deal of, of fine dining, again, for want of a better way of describing it. I'm not particularly keen on that as a phrase. But very little of it is at those restaurants. I'm not one of those who goes, oh, well, I like the so-and-so with the tweezer place, blah, 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 all of mm -hmm. which can be delicious as well. There's no, I don't criticize it. It can be fantastic. But it's not, very few of those stay in my mind. They're just another meal and a, another terrific, but individual things. You know, I still remember on being in Madeira and every morning we would eat this, the bread that's wrapped around chorizo. And the taste of it, now I mention it, is just kind of flooding back into my mouth. I can't remember what they call it there. Is it just panda chorizo? Panko chorizo. So yeah. it's just really had a little black pepper in there. I can taste the little black, because they use quite a lot of black pepper in that one, I think. And it, they just sold it on the street and it was like every morning. For one dollar you get. Yeah, you go and get one. Now you mention that. All I want to do is go and try and make that. I'll know? send you some, Simon. Okay, I'll just, oh, I'm going to send you some frozen ones. There's so... It's a big puzzle, right? So it, it's not just the pieces fitted together. I mean, Food-wise, it has to be the whole element. It's that whole Proustian thing of eating the madeleine. And you take a bite of it. And you know, he wrote a whole book about it. But I know that there are certain tastes and certain smells. I'm actually repackaging some spices in the kitchen into kind of cleaner, you know, new containers. And, and if I open meti, the fenugreek leaf, which I use in a lot in Indian cooking, the smell comes out and I'm immediately back in Calcutta. Immediately that smell, I, I don't know that much else can transport you in that way so quickly. Or if I smell fish sauce and particularly the filipino fish sauce that we've got in there immediately i'm back in the philippines i mean that's why you can tell i get really excited yeah. about the fact that food can have that ability and what i try and do with my cooking and and Eulet, is i want to have someone to have that taste doesn't have to be the prettiest plates and God bless me, my food's not always the prettiest. It's hopefully delicious, but not, you know, I'm certainly not one of those who's making kind of ballet on a plate. But I hope, and I hope, and I do get people say it when maybe they're just being kind, but they go, I've been thinking about the taste of that chicken korma, or I've been tasting, thinking about the taste of, I've been making, I made kinkali the other day, the Georgian dumplings. And people were going, reminds me of when we were in Georgia. It had that taste. It has this in it. It has that in it. And I was going, that's what I want. It's interesting because I, so I work at an embassy, right? And yeah. you know, embassy has a tendency to be a little more formal and it's a little tricky because it's very difficult to please, I imagine 16 people sitting around a table because they don't choose the food in advance, not like a menu, right? And I was always, and I still am a big believer that 
if you can for a second str- strip down a little bit what's going on at the table and like for instance so every time we have a guest or you know guest of honor or something i always try to do some research about him and even in that business environment imagine if then he eats a bread that's it's from his country or something his memory got right away goes somewhere does it make sense i had people you know i remember i had the spanish ambassador at the time almost crying because I made a very simple soup, which is like basically chunks of turnip and cabbage, which is not the prettiest thing to serve at an embassy. But we knew he was from this specific part of Spain. And so I made this soup. And at the end, he hugged me and he said, you know, <laughs> I, the, he said the whole meal, I was just thinking about my grandmother. Oh, uh, uh, see? And that's-, and that's, that's the beauty about, and, you know, especially embassy and, you know, the talent out there is amazing. I much rather to make sure that you have some sort of emotion when you're eating something. Not so much like you said, the ballet on a plate, because my plating, it's okay-ish. But I much rather for you to go back 30 years or go back 15 years or, you know, because we had Portuguese parents that were born in Portugal, but the Americans that, you know, their parents used to make these kind of Portuguese food and then they will go to the Portuguese embassy, especially when I was at the Portuguese embassy, and just start crying because it's like, my mom used to make this. Or, you know, I remember the former Secretary of Energy for the Obama administration. His parents are from Azores, from the islands, and the rice pudding, the grandma's rice pudding, like, and he was just hugging me. And it's so interesting how can you, and that's my mission at the embassy, it's not to give you the foie gras wrapped in puff pastry because... I think the embassy can be, you can be a little selfish and you think more about yourself than you think about the guest. I prefer much more think about the guest and think think a little less about myself. And I think when you create that experience, when you break those barriers, when you strip down that for two seconds, it made my day. Does it make sense? No, no, absolutely makes sense. And I think that reaction that you got from the Spanish ambassador uh, would be like heaven to me to have that reaction. Uh, and that's how I would think about the food. I would probably try and make gambas pill pill or, or something, you know, that I go, particularly if it was, if it was from the South or almond soup, because those are the foods that I love from Spain. And like the other day, I was just thinking at home, I wanted something that made me think of Spain. I made huevos rotos with the jamón and then the yeah. eggs and the, and the deep fried eggs. It's the ugliest looking plate of food you've ever <laughs> seen in your life. But, we wiped the plate clean. And it reminded me of mornings spent in Madrid after a very heavy night before eating, drinking too much Jaime Primera and all of that kind of stuff. It made me feel happy. I'd love, I would love to come and see what you do in the embassy because you are obviously having to deal with lots of different nations in that embassy. And to cook for me would be, to cook for that kind of group would be a really exciting prospect because trying to put something together where you have people from northern european states and portugal the eastern european states and scotland i think would be really fascinating and and very challenging when we former president obama he he lives close to the embassy and he was going there for an official thing end up being canceled at the last minute because sometimes these things happen and it was supposed to be a buffet and you know we start thinking about the most the fanciest thing on earth and i knew for a fact that they love chili oh and i just told the ambassador and his wife we're going to serve chili and you know <laughs> the president 
chili. And you might think like, shouldn't we do something else? My reaction, and unfortunately it didn't happen, so we didn't do it, but um, I had a chance to cook for him other time, but that specific time didn't happen. And I'm like, that's exactly the point. Because, you know, these people go to all these official dinners and lunches and they must be so tired of the caviars and the law. Does it make sense? Yeah. You know, because, if you walk yeah. in a room and it smells like chili and you love chili, you're like, oh, wait. Again, for two seconds, I did my, my goal, which is you completely forget about the rest, but you can enjoy your chili. It didn't happen, but that's always my idea. Like you, mentioned, like you always try to play with emotions a little bit. But I, th- I think part of the problem you have when you're living in that kind of life that someone like you know barbo was is that yeah you you're the meals you get are so identical that you're going in and it will be a pan fried piece of fish and it'll be a very kind of bland piece of starch and it'll be a bread roll or whatever you know and it might look very pretty and someone might make a great beurre blanc and someone might make it or a nage or whatever they're doing there it's going to be technically proficient but it it lacks soul and i think exactly good good cooking for me has two things obviously i'm assuming at that level you're going to have techn- chefs with great technique but i want something that has soul and makes a real connection and something that has intellectual curiosity and by that it's doing what you said doing some research going what would they like to eat not <laughs> what do i want them to serve and one of the problems i find with a lot of dining out as a restaurant critic going up to that kind of area of what I do now a lot of food being served in restaurants now is or again I'm speaking before I've, I put the COVID umbrella over this and assuming that we all know that was happening but I think a lot of the food was chefs either trying to please themselves to show how clever they are to themselves or kind of worse, trying to show how clever they are to other chefs on Instagram and Twitter and plate their food. So they, what they want is one of their peers to go, oh, you're killing it. And instead of going, oh, I had this lady just come up and go, that reminded me of food my grandmother cooked. I don't think people get, chefs don't tend to get the pleasure out of that, people saying that that perhaps you and I do, not all of them, of course, some really do, but I see far too much of people posting, you know, we killed 80 covers at brunch and they're standing there with their knives and it's all, <laughs> you know, you, you've seen it. Yeah. Or they'll stand there with a t-shirt with the outline of a pig on it. And I go, all that's great, but, you know, like one person sending me an email going, I made this dish, I, you put the recipe on here and it was a dish that I knew and I've put a, a hundred and something recipes and just one email from someone going, that was great. And that will make me far happier than any other comment, you know, whether I compete on a TV show or I'd be far happier with just an email going, that was really lovely. Thank you. <laughs> What's your best uh, food joke? I have two. Can I <laughs> Give have me two? Both. Yeah. So why does Karl Marx only drink green tea? Why, Simon? Because property is theft. <laughs> Sorry. They're bad. They're, they're very much dad they're, jokes. They're very good, Simon. They're very good. What's the second one? Stephen Hawking's uh, wrote a book about herbs. It was called A Brief History of Time. Mm-hmm. That's, uh, they don't get any better. I mean, I've got a few others, but they're not going to get any better okay, than it's, this. It's perfect. It's perfect. <laughs> what was your first memory of taste? I remember sitting in a rocking chair where my feet couldn't even touch the end of the rocking chair because it was so small, watching Winston Churchill's funeral yeah. while eating 
Weetabix. Do you know Weetabix? No. The, so Weetabix is a wheat biscuit cereal. You put hot milk on it and it turns almost into like a wheat porridge. It, they, it's, a, okay. it's big. You have it in the US, you have it in the UK. It was a kind of old-fashioned cereal. And, it, and eating that, and what my mum would do was put sugar on top and then kind of very briefly kind of grill it so the sugar caramelized a bit. And then I, I, and I can remember eating that. And my parents, when I mentioned it, they said that's exactly why, what you were eating, what you were doing. So I don't know whether it's a, a reclaimed memory or I've heard them talking about it or it was an actual memory. But I, I can ta- again, I can taste it now. Most underrated ingredient for you? Most underrated ingredient. For me, the greatest kind of underrated ingredient is going to be good basmati rice. The okay. aroma of really good basmati rice. My wife and I have a constant battle because she's from Southeast Asia. I'm from South Asia. She has this crazy belief that rice should stick together. Uh, <laughs> it's crazy and, I have the, and I have this belief that it shouldn't. Because mm-hmm. we, we, yeah, that's, we never argue about anything else. That's probably the biggest arguments. In fact, some of the best rice I've ever eaten was when we were at Quinta de Novala. They were kind enough to put us up overnight and they made this amazing duck rice. And, and the rice that we had with that was so good. It's, it's very, very, very traditional Portuguese. It's normally served with a little bit of chorizo on top, like crispy That's exactly chorizo. how yeah. it was. Uh-huh. I've got a wonderful picture of it. The, but the quality of the rice, the rice, had, like really good basmati rice, you could just sit and smell it. People think that rice should be kind of neutral because we get so much bad rice. There's actually some terrific rice made in the U.S. as well, down in Mississippi, Delta Blues rice, things like that. But really good Indian basmati is just this. Oh. Overrated ingredient for you? Well, there's, there's ingredients that people don't think are really good, but aren't. Because, things like truffle oil, which is just disgusting. It's so because funny. It's, That's a common answer for everybody actually here. Yeah, yeah I, think, well, I think people don't necessarily know that it's you know, basically a byproduct of the gasoline industry and two, four dips of pentane or whatever. Uh, so truffles I love. And they often mistake, and I said the two of them have never been in the same room together. But I'll, t- I'll tell you the one that I, I will say, and I'm not the greatest fan of eating crabs. The effort to reward ratio is, is not in my favor. And it's yeah. just too much effort for too little reward. Have you ever and had so, barnacles? Oh, yes. I've had, I've had uh, barnacles and I've had things like pasebes. And, I, feel, I feel that thing about barnacles because it's a lot of work. And, and then when, particularly when you have pasebes and you see how much you spent on them uh, from Galicia. And you go, <laughs> yeah, yeah exactly. it definitely, definitely wasn't worth the effort and 10 people dying to get them for <laughs> Exactly. Uh, but uh, yeah, so for me... Eh. Yeah. <laughs> the best breakfast you can have. Well, I give a shout out for the great British fry up. Bacon, black pudding, eggs, mushrooms, beans. Essential, though, essential is it's all got to be sitting on a big slab of fried bread. I was going to ask you if you like fried bread. Okay. uh, Oh, fried in the bacon fat and then everything else resting on top of it on the plate. So it crunches under everything. And it reminds me of when I was a kid, I'd go, a uh, student, I'd go to this one restaurant, uh, restaurant, that's giving it a very grand name, Greasy Spoon Cafe. And they would serve the best fry up. It was very cheap. So I would get it as a student. And this place was so down at hill. It was so kind of poor that they had the coffee spoons on a chain to the wall. And they would, people would steal the coffee spoons. So you would stir your tea. I, oh, tea, of course, but 
with this chained spoon. And every now and again, the lady who worked there would come and clean it with the same cloth that she cleaned. The, the, that's another one of those great breakfasts. And it was practically going around the plate like an ice skater on all the fat. <laughs> but it was so delicious. It was so delicious that, again, it's one of those things. And it, what is the strangest combination food-wise some people might do it that you just cannot accept? Gosh, that's, that's interesting. I think it's more about balance than strange combinations. What I find is people don't often, I think one of the things I find when I'm ju uh, judging and when I'm doing tastes is balance of ingredients, hot, sweet, sour. The people don't get that. So they have one thing that comes out. And so even though I'm you know, from India, I don't get people going, I just want to eat something so hot. It's going to burn my mouth because Indian food isn't like that. It can be hot, but that's not the necessity of it its existence. So I think it's more about bad balance than bad combination. So the name of the podcast is Turning Chickens and Breaking Dishes. Those are two Portuguese phrases. Turning chickens means someone that has a lot of experience and breaking dishes means someone that's exceeded all expectations. Do you, <laughs> do you think you've been turning more chickens or breaking more dishes? Well, I think uh, from my own expectations of my life, I'm definitely doing far better than I ever thought I, need, I was ever going to do because I have Um, we were talking about it last night, in fact, with my wife. I have no competitive spirit. I don't like, I'm not one of these who, when they go on food shows, who wants to challenge and blah, blah, blah. And I was watching a show last night about Michael Jordan. You know, it's like, they're so competitive. And I'm like, I'm very British. I'm like, eh, you know, so from that point of view, I'd still probably be happy sitting in a in a publishing company it's just life has taken me in odd directions so i from that point of view i i think that i'm breaking chickens no you're breaking the, the don't break the chickens simon. No, don't you've break been the breaking chickens. you've been breaking dishes simon i'm breaking the chickens down maybe uh, <laughs> breaking dishes but i think I, i think a lot of other people might look at me and go you know you should probably run around a bit more and do I'm, I'm very busy, but I, I don't know what the others might think of me, whether I'm doing anything. That's for others to decide. Breaking dishes, but, then. Yeah, but from my point of view, I'm, doing, I'm having much more fun than I deserve. <laughs> Part of the podcast, to wrap up almost, it's we call sell your fish. So in Portugal, if someone tells you to sell your fish, that means <laughs> you talk about yourself, where people can find you, you know, what's in future for you. Of course, you have your podcast going on. Just tell people a little bit about all of that. Yeah, so, I mean, people can find me on all my social media. So it's at Simon Majumdar. There's only one of me, I think. So I'm not hard to find. Um, and I love chatting to people. It's me who responds on Facebook and Twitter and all of those. It's me. And then the podcast, I, I'm glad you mentioned, because that was a real labor of love. Uh, what I found is doing food TV shows, which is fantastic, but there's not often a lot of time to be you know, to get into depth because the nature of, yeah, which is why talking on something like a podcast is wonderful. And I wanted to talk about food history, which is a real obsession of mine, an absolute obsession. And so I started with friends to do a podcast and we don't do it for, you know, for money. Again, probably we should be if I had any effort, but we, we, we have great fun. We do it in the Department of History at UCLA. So, you know, it's got some good background. And we just write about the history of stuff. We write about the history of sherry or the history of gin, or we write about the history of fish and chips or the last meal served on the Titanic, or we have a new series coming up, the history of caviar. We're going to have the history of curry. We're going to have all kinds of stuff. So you can find that. And it's called Eat My Globe, just because I, I like that title. And I just, I love 
the opportunity to connect with people and talk about food. So I love chatting when I'm around. I love chatting on Twitter. So if people want to connect to me on there, I just like you know, spending time with people. I love doing demos. I love doing cooking demos because, again, I use it as a chance to kind of talk about history while I'm cooking, tell them about garlic and tell them about whatever I'm cooking. And so that's how they can find me. And I, as you can tell, I like to talk about food. That's great. It's great. Simon, so one of the, I just, I started this podcast not, not a long time ago. And you are one of those people, the reason why I want to start doing this, because when someone, my mom, which she's still trying to understand what's a podcast, because she keeps asking me, so do you pay the audience to be in the studio? I was like, mom, there's no audience. So how, which channels? She just can't figure out what's a podcast. But the idea was always to have people from completely different backgrounds, all food related, you know, yep. can go from nonprofit organizations to food bloggers, to food stylists, whatever it is, you know, just talking with you. This, so it was an absolutely pleasure because... Even I normally get very worried about time just because I think I'm being boring to other people. An hour went by and it was, it, it's one of those conversations I'm already saying on the record, there will be barely any editing uh, because <laughs> the juice is just too good. Does it make sense? Uh, oh. you, were, you were like a good orange, Simon. And then when you squeeze, <laughs> you know, sometimes you buy an orange, there's no juice. For me, when I get opportunity to talk to someone who's obviously passionate about it, because some, if, if you're with people who are genuinely passionate about something that you are, that's great. But often pe you know that people are looking at you. If I'm talking about a dish that I ate in the blah, blah, blah of somewhere, and you can see they kind of just, their <laughs> eyes are <laughs> glazing over and they want to be <laughs> anywhere else in the world. So no, the fact that you have, have allowed me to be bore, to bore for my country and to mention Rotherham United as well is... It's blissful. <laughs> so, so, Simon, thank you very much. This was an absolutely pleasure. Thank you, and thanks for inviting me. Thank you very much for listening to the episode. I want to thank all of you for the comments and reviews. And for those that haven't done that, please, please don't forget to subscribe, rate, leave a review, ideally five stars. Tell your friends all about the chickens we are turning and the dishes we are breaking. Periodically, I'll have the Embassy Chef's Corner feature. So if you want to leave me a question or a comment, you can send me an email at info at turningchickensandbreakingdishes.com or find me on Instagram at Turning Chickens Breaking Dishes, on the Facebook page Turning Chickens and Breaking Dishes. And if you want to support this amazing podcast, you can go to anchor.fm slash david-martins. See you next time. Adios.